0: it goes deep into center field way way back goes Matty Alou and that ball is in astro orbit
1: and the little dynamo the toy cannon now has 76
0: runs batted of the year what a shot hello there everybody and welcome to the cannon episode three I'm Vic Ragupati
1: and I'm Jacob Wessels
0: and we're certainly making do in this quarantine we're recording this over zoom and Jacob,
1: you had Passover recently. You had to do that over Zoom, too? So for those of you who aren't familiar, Passover is a Jewish holiday. And the main way it's celebrated is you take the first night of Passover and you have a big dinner with everyone in your family. And so usually I go to Harrisburg and see my grandparents and all their friends. It's a big group gathering of 20 people. And obviously in the age of coronavirus, that was not possible. So instead, we all sat down at our own individual dining room tables, and we had Zooms going across, uh, across the world. It kind of allowed you to mute your family when you were a little bit bored with them and kind of have your own conversation. And
0: I guess there were quite a few answers when you got to ask, why is this day different from all the others?
1: Exactly, That's a, it's slightly different as opposed to how it usually is. Usually the four questions are a bit trite. This year, there was a lot of interesting stuff to go around. <laughs>
0: Well, in the spirit of Passover, I think you've got a themed canon
1: date. When the first professional baseball league was organized in 1871, the star was a Jew of Dutch origin, the outfielder Lippman Emanuel Pike. There has always been an illustrious history of Jews in baseball. From Sandy Koufax and Hank Greenberg, all the way to Jock Peterson and Alex Bregman. it seems like there's always been a prominent Jew in the major leagues. In fact, this history goes back further than even I imagined as the first professional Jewish baseball player, was also one of the earliest stars of the sport. So with Passover starting just a few nights ago, it seemed only reasonable that we look back at the first Jewish baseball player, Lip Pike. As the final shots of the American Civil War were being fired in 1865, Pike received a contract for $20 a week to play with the Philadelphia Athletics. The only problem? Legally, all baseball players were supposed to be amateurs. So when the details of Pike's pay came out, the National Association of Baseball Players ordered Pike attend a hearing where a punishment would be doled out. Pike decided that if he couldn't make a living playing baseball, he didn't want to play at all. He would let the committee decide if they wanted him to be removed from baseball. Fortunately for Pike, nobody else showed up to the hearing either, and the matter was dropped, and Pike continued accepting his money and becoming not only the first Jewish professional baseball player, but perhaps the first ever professional baseball player, and the road to professional baseball as we know it began. Pike would soon return to his home city of New York to play for the New York Mutuals and later the Brooklyn Atlantics. With the Atlantics, Pike had perhaps the greatest individual season of all time, hitting 6'10 and slugging 883. Granted, they were pitching underhand at the time. In this season, Pike's Atlantics also ended the 93-game winning streak of the Cincinnati Reds. As the best player on one of the best teams in the country, Pike had also become an important social figure in New York, catching the attention of none other than Boss Tweed, who eventually put Pike on his payroll to increase the prominence of his political organization, while also employing Pike at Tammany Hall in the offseason. Eventually, his work with Tweed caught up to Pike, as growing legal suspicion about his work in Tammany Hall saw him make a less than voluntary exit from New York. Leaving New York to serve as the player manager for the Troy Haymakers of the National Association, Pike played in the first season of professional league baseball. Despite standing at just 5'8 and weighing in at 158 pounds, Pike was organized baseball's first prolific home run hitter, leading the league in home runs each of his first three seasons. Pike actually hit over 10% of the home runs in the league all three seasons, including a season where he hit 7 out of 35 league home runs in 1872. In part dating all the way back to his first scandal with the Philadelphia Athletics and also his Jewish faith people always questioned Pike's loyalty to his teams, claiming he would jump ship as soon as someone else offered him a larger paycheck. As a result, Pike often had run-ins with his home fans and eventually chose to embrace this mantra, playing for eight different professional teams in just 10 seasons. As the game changed around him, Pike continued to adapt and succeed. When in 1877, they decided to implement the fair-foul rule, it did not hurt the hitting style of Pike as it did many other players. Pike would enjoy a long and fruitful major league career that would come to a close in 1881 when he was called up in August by the National League Worcester Ruby Legs. He joined Worcester in August, on August 27th, and he played center field and batted second. In six games, he went just three for 25, a 120 batting average that was so out of the ordinary for Pike that it actually led to some suspicion about his play especially after he made three errors in the ninth inning to give Boston two runs in a 3-2 victory over the Ruby Lakes. The losing club immediately accused Pike of throwing the game and suspended him. Just a few weeks later, the National League would blacklist Pike for good. And while he was reinstated two years later, this scandal combined with his Jewish heritage seemed to have kept him out of baseball's Hall of Fame in the early years of ballot. But time should not forget baseball's first Jewish star, first home-run king, And perhaps it's first professional.
0: Like the original toy cannon. Exactly. Well, he stood 5'8", but he's clobbered home. 10% of the
1: league's home runs. He may have hit for power, but, you know, he was also one of the league's prominent speed guys as well. He stole 25 bases one season in St. Louis, and he was, you know, willing to put his speed up against anybody. Again, he was very confident in his abilities. So oftentimes after games, he would just invite people down onto the field and start racing them for money. And he would always win these races. And so eventually, one time in Baltimore, they brought a horse out onto the field. And so they set up a race of 100 yards between Pike and this horse. And Pike had a pretty solid lead after 75 yards. And the horse ended up, you know, making a comeback. But Pike was able to hold on. And apparently, he ran 100 yards in 10 seconds. and was able to nose out the horse.
0: Wow. I want Atlanta to take notes on that. They can bring a horse down to try and beat the freeze.
1: Exactly. Or you should have players running against horses on the field. I mean, that's certainly a sight to be seen. I would certainly stay after the game. Billy Hamilton versus a horse? They brought Billy Hamilton and a horse out onto the field and started having him run across the warning track.
0: Yeah, I want to see that.
1: And so, you know, we talked a little bit about his speed, but obviously the main thing about Pike was his power. And so he had a number of of very, you know, important or, or monstrous home runs. Uh, apparently his most famous career home run he hit at brooklyn's union grounds and i think this was kind of a, a famous home run just because he hit it in front of a very large crowd at a very prominent game it was kind of a late season game in brooklyn and they had this giant pagoda in right center field that i it was meant for like viewing the game and nobody had ever hit it anywhere near the pagoda and pike not only hit a ball into the pagoda he hit a ball off of one of the metal struts supporting the pagoda and he hit it so hard it, Bent the metal and the roof of the pagoda started to lean. And so that was one of his, his major career home runs. A second home run that he hit went over the ladies' stands. And so there was kind of like no real fence to the field. Again, this is old baseball. So there's all this weird stuff. Some of these fields have very strange dimensions and, and whatever. So they had like these bleachers in right field for, for the women to sit in, I suppose. But it wasn't like the end of the field. So if you hit it over the ladies' stands, like the players could run around the stands and retrieve the ball and continue the play. And so it ended up being an inside-the-park home run, but it went over and just kept rolling and apparently rolled up onto the train tracks. And, and they estimate that at the end of its roll, it went about 600 feet. By some measures, people consider that to be the longest home run ever hit at the time. Yeesh. But, of course, the most famous thing that Lip Pike has is, in fact, a home run record. So who holds the record for most home runs in the game?
0: A few people, I guess. Anyone who's had a four home run game. So, like, Sean Green, Joe Adcock, Josh Hamilton.
1: What if I told you that Lip Pike has a five home run game? No way. Yep, yep. In his first season in 1866, while playing for the Philadelphia Athletics, this was right before he was caught for being paid. I have no clue how this game happened. You're going to hear some stuff about this game that is just going to make you think this was not real baseball. And I would also believe that. So Lit Pike hit five home runs in the game where his Philadelphia Athletics hit 12 home runs altogether, which is already just a ridiculous line. They won the game 67 to 25. It really begs the question how this game happened. He was actually hitting nine when he hit his five home runs. So he, he wasn't even really a prominent player again. It was his first professional season. So this was kind of what brought him into the national stage and, and what kind of made people start paying attention to Lip Pike. And they weren't cheap shots either. He hit one over 400 feet. The rest of them t- estimated to travel a little bit over 300 feet. So they're not like long, long home runs, but especially in this era of baseball, they weren't exactly cheap shots. There, I really could not find any details on this game. and, and Was this still
0: I, in the era of underhanded
1: pitching? I think this was in the era of underhanded pitching, but that arguably makes it still impressive because it wasn't like there was the same velocity coming in. That's true. You know, uh, underhanded pitching made it very easy to hit for a high average, but hitting for power was difficult. It was, it was one of the you know highest attended baseball games at the time that drew over 30,000 spectators. You know, not only was he... He a pioneer in many aspects of the game in ways we can understand. He also played through a tremendous era of change. He started playing baseball when they pitched underhand and finished playing baseball when they were throwing overhand. You know, he started playing baseball. There were no foul balls.
0: So many players, like you said, were weeded out or were kind of exposed by all those changes. He just rolled with all the punches.
1: In these barnstorming games, they actually keep stats in a way that I think is interesting to think about. But they would keep like averages per game. So they would, they, would, it, they would almost look more like a basketball line.
0: Probably worked more if they scored nearly as many runs as you mentioned in that insane 12 home run game.
1: A lot of the notable games that they mentioned for him, the, the winning team scored over 20 runs. If you
0: bat like 250, you get like a hit per game.
1: Yeah, it's one hit per game, three outs per game. And you could break that down to the total basis per game, which is basically slugging percentage. It's, right. it's not such a foreign concept, but it's, it's a very different way of thinking about baseball.
0: Like through his career, how much was his, his faith used against him?
1: So not a lot is written about it, and I, I don't think it really stopped him from succeeding. So I, I think he kind of all of the doors were open for him in a, in a different way, where it wasn't like he wasn't getting opportunities that other non-Jews were getting. But he certainly dealt with his fair share of of anti-Semitism throughout his career. I was reading one article that kind of said that it was probably similar to the to the type of hate that you know African American players got, not like in the era of Jackie Robinson, but slightly after. So you know when when it was still unusual, but it was commonplace that you would see them, and and it wasn't you know necessarily like every team was was having to deal with these issues, and, and so it was it was not as extreme as as some of the other groups that have tried to integrate baseball, and especially with him being so good and so early on in the game, you know, it wasn't as big a deal, but it certainly, you know, played a role in the way people perceived him and some of the biases that people had with him.
0: Would you still say, if you compare it to the era that you're talking about, like, that's still tough. Like you still hear like horror stories about Frank Robinson in the minors in the fifties. And and like even Bobby Bonds, his experiences in the minors and, and, Many, many other players. Imagine it was not a cakewalk for a live
1: player. Like people just weren't tracking sports stars in the same way we track them now. So I just don't think people were concerning themselves with like those kind of social issues. I mean, literally, he was playing his professional career in the wake of slavery. There were more pressing social concerns to be dealt with than a Jewish baseball player. So I think that's why he largely flew under the radar you know, as kind of being a more social icon because it was just in a time period where there was so much other stuff going on. I will close on this with Lip Pike. Pike was one of the first sons of Israel who ever drifted into the business of ball playing. He was a handsome fellow when he was here and the way he used to hit the ball was responsible for many a sense of enthusiasm at the old avenue grounds. The roster of ball players who once wore the red who have been called out by umpire death is not large. But in the passing away of Lip Pike, one of the greatest sluggers who ever batted for the Cincinnati Reds, he has joined the file in eternity. It's very surreal to me. You know, it just kind of sums up Lip Pike's entire career and it also contextualizes his connection to the modern day. He is literally one of the first Cincinnati Reds to ever play. And he is one of the first Cincinnati Reds to ever die. And there are still Cincinnati Reds playing today. And it's just one, Long train of baseball players, and Lip Pike was the very start of it. Lip Pike, welcome
0: to the canon.
1: Mazel tov. What kind of a
0: boy is this spectacular hurler, who with just two and a half years of major league experience behind him, already has been called a second Lefty Grove, a left-handed Bob Feller, a future Hall of Famer? How often does a rookie do something we've legitimately never seen any other player do before? I'm saying no other player ever at any stage of his career. See, rookie records are one thing. Mike Trout had 10.5 B War in 2012. P. Alonso collaborated 53 homers last year. While fantastic, other players had done that before. In 1955, Herb Score, at age 22, did something no MLB pitcher had ever done. Before that, let's talk about the sheer improbability of Score ever even playing baseball in his life, much less becoming one of the best pitchers in the majors. When he was three, a truck ran him over and crushed his legs just below his pelvis. Doctors feared, of course, that he would never walk again. Somehow his bones settled back into place on their own. And then just a few years later, he faced a bout of rheumatic fever that left him bedridden for 10 months. Once he had an emergency appendectomy while he was nursing a broken ankle. He only began pitching because his high school team needed one. He was so good from day one, his coach vowed scores days in the outfield were over. And then two trends remained constant from right then up through scores break into the big leagues. He struck a lot of men out, and he was utterly humble. He credited his minor league pitching coach when he had an otherworldly 1954 in AAA. When he won Rookie of the Year the next season, he talked about how the other candidates were more deserving. I think he realized how profoundly lucky he was to be there and those who got to see him were even luckier. Score debuted on April 15, 1955, but he arrived on May 1st. A 37-year-old Bob Feller had just made a spot start in the front end of a doubleheader and captured some old magic with a one-hit shutout. It's going to be a tough act for the kid to follow, Feller quipped. Score felt the same way, but he stepped onto the mound and dismantled Boston, allowing one run and racking up 16 strikeouts. Each of the first nine outs was a K. Two weeks later, the Sox sought revenge on the young lefty. Now in the right-handed hitting heaven that is Fenway Park, onlookers were skeptical about manager Al Lopez's decision to start the kid. Lopez said he was not afraid to start him anywhere. Score tossed a three-hit shutout and fanned nine. Those are two of 15 starts that year in which Score had nine or more punchouts. He set a rookie record with 245 Ks that would stand for 29 years. But here's the thing. Score only pitched 227 innings. No qualified MLB pitcher in the history of the major leagues had ever averaged a strikeout per inning or more. Not Rube Waddell, not Walter Johnson, not even teammate Bob Feller. Herb Score did it at 22 years old. And at 23, he was even better. He again led the league in strikeouts, and he added shutouts and fielding independent pitching and ERA+. Once again, he averaged better than a strikeout per inning. He led one of the greatest pitching staffs of all time in ERA and won 20 games. Through his first two years, he had 508 strikeouts. Herb's score was on the express train to Cooperstown, but his car got sidetracked on May 7, 1957. The Yankees, who beat out the Indians for the pennant each of the previous two years, came to Cleveland. Gil McDougald was the second batter of the day. He cracked a line drive up the middle, and it struck a vulnerable score in his right eye. The whiz kid was just in the wrong place at the worst time. Rather than take off for first, a shaken McDougal ran towards the mound. Neither the pitcher nor the hitter was the same after that. All I know is the ball got big fast, Score said afterwards. Though McDougal had difficulty forgiving himself, Score never blamed him, but Score would remain out for the rest of the year. The next year, he was back to his old self, throwing the ball at demon speed and striking out batters. But a rainy June afternoon in Washington waterlogged the ball. In the ninth inning, score felt a pain in his elbow he likened to a stabbing. He had a severed tendon. Score was rushed back the next month, and his elbow popped again. In spring training the next season, he again looked good. Ted Williams said to the Cleveland catcher, just after a vintage Herbie heater, he's got it again. And I'm glad. Though he was not back to peak form in 59, he still struck men out. For the third and final time, he led the league in K per nine ratio. As the years wore on, he spent large stretches in the minors and did not complain. He had a long career in broadcasting for mostly hapless Cleveland teams. He suffered through a car crash, a stroke, staph infection, and pneumonia all in his late 60s and early 70s. At one point, he said, People say I'm unlucky. Me? Unlucky? I'm a guy who was in the right place at the right time.
1: That's such a, such a powerful and interesting story because, you know, he just – he kept bouncing back. Every time you thought that that was going to be the thing that ended him, you know, it, it wasn't until he finally, you know, got something he couldn't handle and it just kind of ended his career.
0: Sometimes, like, the greatest of stories are just how much you can bounce back from all the shit that life gives you. Getting run over by a truck, he was only three years old, so his bones were a little more plasticky, I guess, and they were able to set back in place. But at the same time, he was also only three. Like, he might have just had limp legs for the rest of his life.
1: Yeah, it's pretty crazy that, you know, he managed to pull, pull all of this stuff off and then eventually have two, a two-season run that was utterly dominant and in the likes of which nobody had ever seen before. Yeah, through his first two years, he had 13 B-War. Which is just I mean, unheard of. His ERA
0: Plus was 153. He was given the middle name Jude by his mother because Jude is the patron saint of hopeless causes. And so any time that he faced any sort of adversity, he would pray to St. Jude. He ended up having a much, much better life and career than he ever should have.
1: What kind of a pitcher was he, though? Because obviously he was a strikeout pitcher. I'd imagine he was a power pitcher, but he was also completely wild. He was like most young
0: fireballers where they've got strikeout stuff and like demon speed but they walk a lot of guys. He wasn't the best with control. He led the league in wild pitches three years. Like the three good full seasons that he got, he led the league in wild pitches all of those years. Just in those three years alone, he threw 37 wild pitches. I'll say it like this. Score and Bob Feller were actually signed by the same scout, a guy named Cy Slapnica, and many called Score the left-handed Feller because he threw so hard. Feller called him Kofax with a better fastball. Interesting. So yeah, he had a fastball with a lot of speed and a lot of movement. And he even had like a curveball that was comparable to that of KOFAX.
1: Yeah. So I mean to, to side note, you mentioned Bob Feller there, because Bob Feller in his age 18 season, which is just ridiculous that he was already doing this at 18 years old, did strike out more than more than a batter per inning. But I suppose he doesn't qualify because he didn't qualify to lead the league in strikeouts per nine that year.
0: Because I think qualifying is playing, pitching an inning for every game your team plays. And so Herb Score was the first qualified pitcher to have a K per nine over nine, and he had it for his five prime years. He had a K per nine well over nine. Fifty-seven was the year he got hit in the eye with the line drive. In 57 and 58, he barely pitched, but he was still really, really good when he did. He pitched 77 innings over those two years, and he still struck out over 10 batters per nine innings. He had a 3.04 ERA and a 2.75 FIP. Over those 77 innings, he allowed one home run.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that's so shocking to me, is you would think the eye thing is what really derailed him, but it seems like he bounced back from that. He was
0: never quick to blame anything for anything that happened in his life. That's one of the the things that made him such a great guy. He was pretty adamant that the eye thing didn't do anything. Like he said, it didn't change his motion. It didn't really make him more apprehensive. Though a lot of people around the game were like, it must have changed his psychology. But really the thing that he points to more than anything is that afternoon in Washington where he pitched eight and a third innings with a waterlogged ball throwing as hard as he could and then two pitches in a row bounced 10 feet in front of the plate and that's when he heard a pop there was even a pop that people claim they heard from the dugout and he just snapped a tendon in his elbow and then he tried to bring him back just a month later
1: yeah I will say I was looking at some pictures online and, and if you are a fan of graphic images you can see some pretty scary pictures of him after he was hit in the eye you know, there's him being stretched off the field and him just literally looking... Kind of dead on the pitcher's mound, huddled over.
0: Somehow he regained his eyesight. Like you said, it was a gruesome, gruesome sight. Maybe no one was more affected by this than Gil McDougal, who was a shortstop for the Yankees that hit Herb's score in the locker room afterwards. He's like, if he loses his eye, that's it. I'm quitting. Even though Herb came back and, you know, showed flashes of the pitcher that he was, Gil McDougal kinda kinda lost his love for the game after this incident. From 1951 to 57, he slashed 285, 368, 423. He never had an OPS plus below league average. The three years following that, 1958 to 1960, he slashed 253, 324, 374. He had an OPS plus of 95. And he was out of baseball at age
1: 32. Wow. Yeah, there are so many people who are just so amazing. And for one reason or another, they can't can't keep it together for their entire
0: career. I kind of mentioned offhandedly that Herb Score was fantastic in in 1954 in Triple A's last year in the minors before he got called up. He went 22 and five with a league leading 2.62 ERA, and he set a record by striking out 330 batters in 251 innings. Oh wow! In addition to that, he even like got his walks under control the year before that he walked 126 batters in 98 innings oh my god this year in 54 he pitched 251 innings and he walked 140 batters
1: i mean he just is is one of the most you know interesting pitchers ever i wonder if that's the first time someone had struck out 300 batters in in any level of professional baseball
0: it wasn't the first time because there were 300 strikeout seasons in the majors. Like I mentioned, Rube Waddell and Walter Johnson and Bob Feller, none of them had a qualified season of a K per nine over nine. But all three of them did have 300 strikeout seasons. Yeah,
1: because Bob Feller pitched 371 innings one year.
0: Yeah. And, he and that's out. how you
1: can do it. You can yeah. out less than a batter per inning.
0: And Rube Waddell had the, the strikeout record for a long, long time until Sandy Koufax broke it.
1: Wow, that is, that is something else right there. Yeah, you know, just a couple,
0: a couple fun facts about Herb's score. He played with his high school catcher, who was the backup catcher on both the Indians and the White Sox. So he had his battery made from high school in the pros with him, kind of. His roommate and closest friend on the Indians was Rocky Colavito. He's and- not
1: a friend of Jim Gentile.
0: They even called each other Roomy all the time. And the two of them were traded on back to back days. People loved Herb score, but the reason his trade kinda to the White Sox kind of went under the radar was because people loved Rocky Colavito. And when he got traded for Harvey Keen, which was kind of famous and sparked his whole curse for the Indians, people went wild. They went insane. They they wanted the GM's head on a stick. And so the next day when other fan favorite Herb score got traded, I would have had the same reaction if it had happened a week earlier as they did to Colavito because Rocky got traded, people almost didn't notice it.
1: It reminds me of a story from Lou Gehrig that I always like where he's like, I could be doing a headstand in the on deck circle and people wouldn't care when Babe Ruth was up. You know, it's just like, there's something, you know, more pressing or slightly more famous that leaves you a little bit, you know, in the shadows
0: and then my my last little fact i'll I guess i'll leave with this Joe Cronin, the Red Sox manager, offered one million dollars to the Indians for herb score before the nineteen fifty seven season So after these first two years, Joe Cronin of the Red Sox offered a million dollars that is a lot of money and Hank Greenberg didn't take it, but to put that into context, babe Ruth got sold to the Yankees for $100,000, which is a million dollars in today's money. The offer for Herb Score was a million dollars in 1955 money, which is gotta be 15. a lot. It's like nine to 10 million now.
1: There wasn't that much money in baseball at the time, so that's yeah. just crazy. He was
0: a, a shoe in Hall of Famer, it looked like, after two years. That's our third class for the canon. We've got Lip Pike, the first slugger, the first star, perhaps the first professional and in honor of Passover, the first Jewish star of professional
1: baseball. And can I, can I add one final thing about Lip Pike? Sure. I was found this when I was searching around the internet. There is a change.org petition to get Lip Pike into the Hall of Fame. And it has like 400 signatures. But, uh, you know, I think if we can throw our mic behind that, we might be able to get Lip Pike inducted.
0: Both of you people that are listening, go vote on change.org. Let's Pike into the Hall
1: of fame, fame this Passover.
0: For now, he and Herb score. We know that you were destined for Cooper's sound, but we also know that you would be just as happy to be included in the Toy Cannon canon. And that concludes episode three. We'll see you next time.